Amen. Let me invite you to turn to the book of Acts. It's been a while since we've been in Acts, since we went into November. We had Mission Harvest Sunday and quite a few guest missionaries, and so it's been, uh, been a couple of months. But we're in Acts chapter 9 this morning, and um, let me give you just a little bit of a review real quickly. We know that the book of Acts was written by Luke, who was actually a medical doctor of the time, Probably not someone I would go to if I was not feeling well. Uh, He was trained the best they could back then, but of course, a lot of advances since that time. But we know he wrote the book in about 60 to 62 AD, and it's somewhat of a continuation of his Gospel of Luke. So if you were to read the Gospel of Luke and then go right to Acts, you'd think, gee, these fit together quite nicely. Well, same author, guided by, inspired by the Holy Spirit, but same author and so style and and somewhat uh, very much the same. But the main focus of the book of Luke is the growth of the church. How did a small band of 12, which grew into a few more and a few more, suddenly by 60 to 62 AD as the church grew, or that's when it was written, but uh, just a few years after Jesus' resurrection, how could it become a movement of fifteen to 20,000 people, which is about what it was at this point in time? Now it's certainly much, much larger than that worldwide. How did that happen? Well, as the Holy Spirit came in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and it empowered the believers and helped them to be those living witnesses of faith in Christ, they spread that word. And as the word spread and as the Holy Spirit did what only he could do, others trusted in Christ and it just grew and grew and grew and Here we are today, the book of Acts, history of the church and what the church did in those early years. What can we learn from that? What principles can we gain that will help us to live lives, as Jesus would say, worthy of the gospel today? By the way, in the foyer when you came in on either side of the cross, you saw uh, postcards with words on them and you may have thought, why are they there? Well, if you weren't here last Sunday, you may wonder, why are they there? If you were here last Sunday, you'd go, where is my card? Well, it's up there, okay? Uh, what we did last Sunday was kind of fun. We, we did a look back on 2019 and talked a lot about God's faithfulness. Then we looked ahead and we said, we can trust Him for the coming year. But is there a word that represents your trust? Uh, for my wife, Lisa, and I, we chose the word anticipation. Now, why is that? Are you having more grandchildren? No, not that I'm aware of. Uh, They're certainly welcome. But uh, our daughter, Katie, is going to be graduating in May. She's getting married at the end of May. And just a lot of major life occurrences this year for our family. So the word anticipation uh, came to mind. And uh, that was just for our family. Other things came to mind as far as our, uh, our church family and what we see God doing. And so just that sense of what is God going to do? Anticipation just seemed to capture us. So maybe for you, there's a word. If you weren't here last Sunday, you say, hmm, okay, let me think about that. Well, I encourage you to think about it. And throughout this month, you can take a card home and bring it back. Or you can, if you're ready to do something today, grab one of the pens, grab a card, write your word on there, leave it on the foyer, and we'll put it up for you. But throughout the month, we want to keep putting those up there. And our hope is then during the year, we'd like to hear back from you. How is God working in the way that you asked him to in the coming year? And so we don't want to just do it as an exercise, but we want to do it as a way to see God at work. Uh, We hear about things like the Philippines and India. How about Shafter, California or Bakersfield or wherever you're from? 
and we want to make sure we're including where God is working here. So that's, that's the purpose of that. So feel free to grab one of those, uh, take it home, do it today, whatever, but throughout the month of uh, January is when we're wanting to do that. All right, let's pray together and ask God to be our teacher, and then we'll look into his word together. Father, thank you for this, uh, this special Sunday. Every Sunday really is special as a chance to gather as the body of Christ. We thank you for uh, the family and friends that are gathered here with the Van Horns and the Egglestons, and what a, what a privilege it is to, uh, to have them here with us this morning, for them to have them with them as they celebrated these two little lives. We thank you, Father, that you begin working in our lives and, and you're faithful to work in and through us. We're going to see this morning of a, of a radical conversion on the Apostle Paul, who was known as Saul, as his life was interrupted and changed, Lord, in many ways you not only interrupt our life at the point when we place our trust in you, but you continue to interrupt our life because you want to remind us that your will is always what's best for us. It's always what brings us the most satisfaction. It's always what's most freeing for us, even though other things may look attractive at times. They may be necessarily not wrong or bad, but maybe not what's best. And so, Lord, as we look at the Apostle Paul, as he was still known as Saul, teach us this morning. Help us to learn from him. And then as we celebrate this morning and remember the ultimate sacrifice for us through communion, would you just uh, continue to uh, interrupt our lives? Would you continue to uh, do radical things in and through us, even if it's just incrementally, Lord, continue to... Uh, to bring about your will. Thank you for this time we have this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Most of us, if not all of us, I would say, have never had an experience quite like Paul. Uh, maybe something close. Maybe you get an email or a text or, or a phone call or something that's just in some ways out of the blue and you go, wow, I didn't see that coming, but that must have been from God. Well, multiply that out quite a few times, and that was probably Saul's experience or the Apostle Paul as we think about it. He was an arch enemy of the church. We see him introduced at the end of chapter 7 at the stoning of Stephen. A young man named Saul gave hearty agreement to what was happening, in fact became a leader in the persecution of the early believers. Had we lived in, in that time and we were particularly from a Jewish background, we were gathering as new believers in Christ one of the murmurs in the crowd might have been, anybody know where Saul is? Because Saul was a man to be feared. And he had the authority from the high priest himself to do whatever was necessary to stop this new movement. Little did he realize he was actually working against God himself. But sometimes it takes a bolt of lightning, as we'll see, to convince some. Uh, the presence of the Lord himself. So... Keep that in mind. Most of us have not had this kind of experience, and yet I believe God still works to radically change us even today. Maybe not like Paul or Saul, that's okay, but according to how he wants to work in our life. But the, I think the first thing we learn from Paul's experience is that radical conversion, whether it was when you were a child or later in life, for me as a high school student coming to Christ, often, if not always, involves others in the process. Not that God can't do something by himself. He's perfectly able. But he chooses to use people to impact the lives of people in some form or fashion. It's all about relationships. There's that key part of our strategy as a church called CPR, 
Cultivate, plant, reap, or relational ministry is another way we say it. In other words, it's all about relationships. And God uses relationships more than anything to change us. As I think about how God has radically changed my life over time, and you might think, oh, come on, Pastor Pat. Well, you didn't know me when I was 16, did you? Uh, I was kind of a jerky kid. Maybe still am. Uh, And so God is still in the process of changing me to be like Jesus. But he uses primarily relationships in that process. And in your life too. That's how he works. And he wants to use us in the lives of others. Starting in verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul, or Paul as we think of him, was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. Damascus was north of Jerusalem, about 135 to 150 miles, depending on scholars and how they, how they measure that. But we know it was north in Syria. In fact, it is actually the capital of modern-day Syria still today. And he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. There were Jewish people there. So that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoner to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven. And that phrase could be translated like lightning, but we know it was more the presence of God, which is even brighter than lightning, that Shekinah glory we see in the Old Testament. From heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He replied, now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Now, there's other accounts that Paul gives of his conversion. We see later in the book of Acts, in, verse, in chapter 22, in verse 9, he says it this way, My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him, who was speaking to them. In other words, they knew something had happened, but they didn't hear or see quite like Saul did or Paul. In 1 Corinthians, we see him also referring to this in chapter 9, verse 1. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? So we know that he saw Jesus. And then in verse or chapter 15, again, he talks about seeing the Lord where he talks about the evidence for the resurrection of Christ And he says it this way, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born or born at the wrong time. He always was humble about, why me, Lord? Why me? Why did you use me considering my background? Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord said to him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. That Straight Street is actually still in Damascus. That's, that's an ancient road. They have built over it, as they often did with ancient cities, but it's actually still there. And ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, 
This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the peoples of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. After taking some food, he regained his strength. So we see this dramatic conversion on the road to Damascus. And like I said, most of us, I'd say all of us, have never had anything quite like that happen to us. Maybe something close, maybe an unexpected thing, but God chose to call him in a very dramatic way. God, as I, as I already said, often, if not always, uses others to bring people to himself. As I've shared my own story, he used my mom particularly, my mom and dad who became believers before me, began to pray for me, encourage me, and my mom called a friend who called me and invited me to a youth group, and it was in that setting after about attending four or five times that the idea of the gospel was presented to me. What does it mean? How do, how do we go to heaven? That was the biggest thing burning on my mind. I was 16 years old. The Vietnam War was, had wound down, but there was still kind of that, you know, stuff in the air, so to speak. I had lots of relatives who had been in World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and I thought, man, I could get drafted and shot and killed. What's going to happen to me? That was my burning question. And I went to that meeting wondering, do they have the answer I'm looking for? How good do I have to be to go to heaven? That was probably the most burning question on my mind. And the answer came as, you'll never be good enough. Okay, that's a problem. <laughs> Someone explained that a little bit more. <laughs> they explained, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Oh, I admit that. Man, I could give you a list right now. And the wages of sin or the result of sin is death. Physical death, eternal separation from God. Keep going. There's got to be better news here. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Prior to Ephesians 2.10 that I read for Addie and that, that artwork that she is of God's was Ephesians 2, 8, 8 and 9. For it is by grace that we are saved through faith. Grace is unmerited favor. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. But by faith we trust and say, I believe that Jesus did everything for me so that I might be forgiven because I need it. Because I sin just like everybody else. Communion reminds us of that. It's a tangible reminder of what he's already done for us. So we don't earn or deserve our salvation. We receive it like a gift, just like we receive gifts at Christmas time. If someone offered you a gift and said, here, I've got this for you. It's bought and paid for. You'd say, well, what do I have to do to earn it? Well, you don't. You just unwrap it and enjoy it. And that's what salvation is. We trust it by faith. And that's what Paul had to learn because he was in the I got to be good enough mindset and he was very devoted. In fact, in the book of Philippians, he tells, he gives his pedigree of what should have been good enough for God and he still fell short because none of us are. And he, more than any other writer in the New Testament, made it very clear. Salvation was a gift through faith in Jesus Christ. Receive it, trust it, and then enjoy it. See God radically convert you from the inside out and set you free in ways you never imagined before. And begin to live the life that he intended from the beginning through the first Adam 
who messed up, so he brought the second Adam, Jesus, so that we might have eternal life. And that, this is just the beginning. This isn't even heaven, as good as it may be at times. This is just a foretaste of what God has for us. God uses people. So you think about that. How did you come to Christ, and how does God want to use you to bring others to Christ? In preparing this morning, I was reading through one of the commentaries I have, and Dr. Warren Wiersbe has always been kind of a, one of the favorites of mine, and he tells this story. On April 21st, 1855, a man named Edward Kimball, who none of us have probably ever heard of, led one of his Sunday school boys to faith in Christ. Little did he realize that Dwight L. Moody would one day become the world's leading evangelist. Of that time, there's been more since then. Some guy named Billy came along, and he was pretty good too from what I hear. The ministry of a guy named Norman B. Harrison an obscure, at an obscure Bible conference, never heard of him either, was used of God to bring a man named Theodore Epp to faith in Christ. And God used Theodore Epp to build the Back to the Bible ministry, which is still going strong today around the world. He goes on to say, our task is to lead men and women to Christ. God's task is to use them for his glory. Every person is important to God. So the question maybe for us is in 2020, who does God want to reach with you or me or us for faith in Christ? It might be the next Billy Graham or the next Dwight O. Moody or whoever. Maybe they're just waiting for the same answer I was waiting for when I was in high school. How do you get to heaven? Not realizing there's so much more to the answer than just how do you get to heaven? It's how do I know God? How do I walk with him personally through faith in Jesus Christ? You see, radical conversion often, if not always, involves others in the process, but it also can sometimes be a threat to others, and we're going to see that happen now. Paul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. With all of his Old Testament training, passages like Isaiah 53, he just said, man, this is who that Isaiah was talking about hundreds of years before he even came to earth. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the one they were waiting for. Many days had gone by, and there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him, but Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him, but his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were afraid of him. Boy, I would be too. Not believing that he was really a disciple. But Barnabas, who we met back in chapter 6, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with him, with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. Hmm, tough, tough group. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. 
Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. You see, when God begins a work on our life, many will say, wow, that's amazing, that is so great. Others will say, get away from me. Don't give me your God stuff and your religion, just stay away. That's kind of what was happening to Paul. Because he, being trained in Judaism, and then he was telling others like him, look, you can't, you're not going to be good enough for God. You've got to realize Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through him. He said it himself. We see that in the book of John. Through faith in Christ, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to God's mercy that we're saved. And, and, and over and over and over he was preaching these things. Some embraced it and became believers, followers of Christ. Others said, no way. And they tried to kill him. Tough crowd. I've never faced that kind of thing before. I know in India, where we're going, it has made the top ten list of the most persecuted places in the world for Christianity. Fortunately at this point, right, Westerners are safe, we hope. <laughs> but the Indian Christians, there's all, I've seen videos that Pastor Kieran has shown me of, of Christians being persecuted, beaten and, and stripped naked and made just, just, literally made fun of. Others, their homes are burned and, and they're killed. I mean, it, it's a tough place to be a Christian. And you know what's happening? The church is just growing like wildfire there. I'm not saying bring on the persecution. That's a tough thing, but God is more powerful than any government on earth. And in spite of what's happening in India, he is building his church. And you know what? The gates of hell will not prevail against it. He promises that. So whatever culture it's in, he will do what only he can do. Some people will embrace radical conversions while others may be suspicious or even opposed to them. And we need to be prepared for both. As this new year begins, God may be tapping on your heart saying, look, there's some things I want to do in your life. We've been talking about them all through 2019. It may not be as radical as Paul or Saul, but... It's a change, a change of lifestyle, a change of doing business, a change of con how you conduct yourself at school or on your sports team or even within your family unit. I want to change you there. Lots of changes that he's brought in my life over the years and I trust in yours too. But as those changes come, some will say great, others will say stay away. We have to be prepared for both. Some will not understand and they will reject us. But that's part of the price of the gospel. Some will embrace it and others won't. I'd like to invite those who are helping serve communion if they'd come and take their place on the front pew. You see, for the believer, our initial salvation is in so many ways only the beginning of ongoing change which in times involves Radical conversion experiences, changes that are pretty big steps of faith for us. Maybe God is asking you to take one in 2020. I don't know. I know what he's asking me to do and continue to do. But maybe God, by his spirit, is tapping on your heart this morning. He will often use people to do that. It might be your spouse. It might be your children. It might be a teammate. It might be a coach or a teacher. Who knows who God will choose to use. But... I guess the question for each of us to think about is who is God using to change your life and how does he want to use you to change others? We can't play Holy Spirit, 
But we can be available to the Holy Spirit to be used to encourage other people to either come to faith in Christ or continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus.